Well, we're back in Galatians, as I mentioned before, and uh, if you don't recall, or maybe this is your first time here, Galatians uh, is really our opportunity to be grounded in the one true gospel, that no other gospel will set us right or keep us right uh, and in good standing with God. Instead, it is only the gospel that Jesus has come. It's right there in Galatians 1, 3, right? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so right at the beginning of this letter is the gospel presented to us so that we may be rooted, rooted in that true gospel. So as we continue on, are you ready for crazy town? As if we haven't already had enough today. <laughs> right? Are you ready for crazy town? So crazy town is that time like that started, I don't know when it started for you. It feels like it started last week for me until like beginning mid-January where just the pace of life ticks up and it's insane. Like you can't keep up with it. And so that's crazy town for, for all of us. I'm just redefining it. It's the American uh, Christmas way where we just go at a pace where no reflection really can be entered into because we've just got to get to the next event. That's crazy town. It's, it, it's shopping. It's Christmas parties. It's choir concerts. It's, it's school plays. It's performance reviews at work. Do they do that during December for you? Anyone? That's fun. Yes. November or December, performance reviews during the, we've got to figure out how much we've earned through the year for that Christmas bonus. Performance reviews at work, family dynamics for Thanksgiving, and if that wasn't enough, you get to do it again in just three or four short weeks. <laughs> Who's excited? <laughs> right? And, so, and, then, and then in the midst of all that, then we throw something like Advent on top of that, and we go, hey, look, I know your life's going to get crazy. Slow down. You're going to miss God if you don't slow down, and that's true. Don't forget about the meaningful moments that you got to pursue over this time. Like there's, it just, it's just a never ending list of things to either do or not do or remember or forget. I'm not really sure which one some days. That's why I call it crazy town. My question is, how are we going to make it? How are we going to thrive through the next six, eight weeks of life? Because it's almost like we just throw our hands. Like I had somebody call me or email me this week and said, hey, I'd love to sit down with you and talk about how you guys do your groups in your church. I've heard they're awesome and I want to know about them. And I'm like, I, I don't know who you've been talking to, but that's great. Uh, and so let, I'll, I'll talk to you. He goes, hey, you know what? Like the next month and a half is just off. Let's do it in middle of January. Like he knows there's no point in trying to schedule anything for the next almost two months. That's crazy to me. And yet that is something that we're all in. And so how do we get past this? How do we do more than survive through this, not just this next week, but this next season and do more than just of like barely avoid depression? Like, I don't know about you, but I get to January, I'm like, I don't know what that was, but I don't know if I want to go through it again. Oh, it'll be here again. And, and like, how do we not go into financial and emotional debt? How do we not just simply look back at this next season that we're entering into and just go, man, that was just way too busy. There was not nearly enough meaningful moments in the chaos. Well, today's passage isn't going to fix all that. <laughs> oh, that's funny to me. Sorry. I wrote that. I didn't realize how funny it was. It's not going to fix all that, but I think it will provide some perspective for us 
as we enter into a crazy season and then maybe be able to look back, like what is it that truly will break us free from some of the chaos and the carnage of the American way here during Advent and Thanksgiving and Christmas? Uh, Today, I've entitled today's passage uh, very C.S. Lewis-like as the babysitter and the dragon slayer. Um, It feels like I should be right after like, I don't know, Prince Caspian, um, but the babysitter and, and, and the dragon slayer, right? And so um, that's what we're going to talk about today. It's kind of these, this fascinating thing. And I don't know where it came from except maybe the Lord. Maybe it was just me. Uh, but as we enter into that and as we look at all this craziness that's around us, uh, I do want us to focus on the babysitter and the dragon slayer. But before we get there, there's been so many references in Galatians 3 that I know we have forgotten or pushed past or just read past and gone, I don't think that applies to me. And those references are constantly back to Abraham. Constantly back to Abram. We just read another one in in Galatians 3, verse 29. And I don't think that our technology is going to work, so you're going to have to use your technology or the paper Bible that maybe you brought. And so, like, bring that up. We are going to be in Galatians. We'll also read uh, Genesis uh, chapter 12. I want us to understand that, that this promise of being Abraham's heir isn't something that we should put aside. Before we even get into the babysitter and the dragon slayer, I need to go back and read for us Genesis 12, 1 through 3, because if we can do that and be reminded of the promise that God gave Abraham, and then Paul says in Galatians 3, 29, this is ours in Christ, that's an important aspect to being rooted. It's an important aspect to getting through this next six to eight weeks, much less our life. And so Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I want to read it for us. Because Galatians 3 says, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Here is the promise that was given to Abraham. Genesis 12. Some people say this is the most influential and important piece of scripture in the whole Bible. Is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you, of you, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and in him, and him who dishonors you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. I'm going to shatter your Fox News worldview right quick. The people that God has blessed in Genesis 12, drawing a straight line from Genesis 12 to Galatians 3, are the people who stand in Christ. That's Christians, those that are followers of Jesus, not the nation of Israel. Because the nation of Israel doesn't have anything to do with Messiah, except they are the Jewish people, and God has a special place for them in his heart, and he wants them to repent and believe in Jesus. That's what he wants for all people. Like, I I just realized I just stepped on all the Fox News toes. I'm okay with that. There will be more of that as we go. Because here's the deal. We cannot find our identity in anything else besides Christ if we are going to call upon the name of Jesus and then call upon his father as our father. And so this isn't about like supporting a nation. This is about supporting the king and the kingdom. Whether we're American or Israelites or Afghanis or whomever. This is about our allegiance. This is about our loyalty. This is about our familyhood in loving Jesus because he has loved us. So the, the, the truest Jewish people are sitting in this room. Because you're found in Christ. Okay, I want you to see this. We have been grafted into this perfect plan that God's been writing for all of eternity. 
That's what Romans 9, 10, and 11 would say. Now I've just gone into the deep end and I've got to explain myself. Right? That's the, that's the reality of where we're at. We are found in Christ and we have the inherent blessings of Abraham because of Christ. So all the things that were given to Abraham are now given to us if we would believe. If we would believe in Jesus. So that's the, the promise for us that in Galatians 3, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are part of this blessing to be a blessing. You are part of being grafted in and brought into the family of God that has nothing to do with Israel or America. This has everything to do with Jesus and following him, believing in him. So Paul in Galatians is saying this, that God's covenant with Abraham still matters because we're in that covenant. We're in that blessing. We're in that promise to Abraham. And he says, how will all the earth be blessed because of Abraham? Because drawing a straight line from Galatians 3 to Genesis 12, he says, you will be a blessing to the people through the seed of Abraham. That is Christ. All right, so that kind of builds on all this stuff going on in Galatians 3. We're going to pick back up in the new year in Galatians 4. And when we do, we're going to get right back to Abraham. So that's why I'm bringing it up because I don't want us to forget about this promise that we have in Christ. That we are the people that God calls blessed, that God calls favored, that God calls his, because we believe in Christ. And so the problem is, though, right, is that Genesis 12 comes long before Moses, and this promise was given to Abraham, and, and the people of God didn't believe the promise. And so the law was given to us through Moses. And it's this law that's governed his people for now millennia, and so we get to Galatians 3, and I just want us to understand that the, one of the main reasons why the law was given was as a governor, and that's the babysitter, this guardian, this, 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 this slave that was entrusted over uh, this household that would have been entrusted to care for children in a home. And that babysitter, that, that guardian would have been there to harshly, harshly discipline children. This isn't a merciful uh, slave in the household in the first century Jews. This wasn't a merciful system. Instead, this was a slave that was put in charge of children and they were there to teach them, to protect them, but also to harshly correct them if they were to stray in any which way. And that's the image that Paul gives us of the law in 323. Let's read it. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the, uh, until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian, our babysitter. That head slave that looks after children and harshly disciplines them. The law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. What Paul is telling us is that this babysitter is the law. It's kind of like um, the speed limit. I think I've referenced this before. So the speed limit is there really to govern you, right? Um, if we asked for a raise of hands on who broke the speed limit already before, say, 1045, we would all have to raise our hands most likely because this is what we do with the speed limit and this is what our hearts do with no matter what the law is, this is what our hearts do. We find the limit and we go, maybe just a little bit more though. Our kids do this, don't they? Don't touch that because it's hot. Boop. This is in our hearts. It's rebellion is what it is. So if it says 35, I know I can go 40. 
And that's illegal. That's a breaking of, God, of, of, of the practical and natural laws that our land has given us, right? And here's the deal. If I do that enough, if I, if I get in trouble enough, if I get enough tickets, what's going to happen? Am I going to go to the court and the, the judge is going to go, you're forgiven. I know you mean it. You mean well this time. I know that you have like eight tickets in a row. You mean well this time, by the way, and you're forgiven. There's no mercy. They're going to say, prove your sincerity by paying these fines. So the, 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 the curse or the result of breaking the law is more law. That's why it's a harsh babysitter for us. That's why the law of Moses is a harsh babysitter for us. Uh, you guys are, are, are tuning out on this, I see. All right. Let me bring this down to where we, where we live. So most of us, uh, when you think about how you should give to the church, now we're going to get down into your wallet, which is a no-no. Right? You're going to Thanksgiving, you're like, I don't want to talk about uh, politics. Don't want to talk about what I did with my budget this year. I don't want to talk about religion. Uh, but this is uh, God's family, and we're all welcome at the table of, of God. And, and Jesus talks about money a lot. So here we are. So I'll bet you, if you think about, like, what is the standard by which I should give to the church, you have like a, a, a word in your head. I'm not going to ask you to say it, because then it's a trap. That's not the word. <laughs> Although it could be. You never know. That could be exactly the word. We actually don't speak that tongue yet. Uh, but what is the word, right? It's tithe. We would think we would need to tithe to give to God's people. And yet if you read uh, Old Testament, like, the, the, like carefully read the Old Testament, what you would find is that that was a bare minimum of 10% that they would give according to God's law. Sometimes during certain festivals, they would give up to 24% of their income. So the law requires 10%, sometimes up to 24% of your, of your, of your, of your harvest, of your flock, like you're not just like the, the, the wounded flock, the best of the best flock that you have. Sometimes 10%, sometimes 24%. Your side hustle, he wants 24% of that too. And so that was to pay temple taxes. That was to pay for the Levite priests to live. That was actually also to pay for the entire nation. That was your taxes in the Old Testament ways. When we get to the New Testament, we don't see that word. Not as a mandate for what we should do with our money. Not as a mandate to what, on what we, how we should give to God's people. This is um, professional suicide, what I'm doing right now. I'm telling you not to tithe. You know why? Because that's a babysitter. It's a law. And when the law says to do X thing, you go, okay, well, I'll do it because you said to do it. And your relationship is stuck with a thing. And the New Testament invites us to much more. The New Testament standard of giving is far beyond 10%. So, so, so go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7, and we'll read that first. Because I think this is important for us as I, as I just sat in this passage and I go, how is it that the law is a babysitter? I think we treat the law like we treat our money. Like we even treat how we, how we raise our children. Well, I'm going to treat them, I'm going to raise them X uh, ways and hope they turn out this way. I'm going to give because this is what God says to do. I'm going to parent because this is how God says to do it. And yet there's something far greater that God wants to invite us into. So look at the New Testament standard of giving. It's not 10%. Look at how he tells us to give in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7. And if you can't bring it up, I'll read it to you. Each one must give as he has decided in his own heart. 
not reluctantly or under compulsion. You see it? The law says do it. I don't care how you feel about it. Not reluctantly or under compulsion. And then it goes on. For God loves a cheerful giver. He loves it when we're generous. He loves when we don't think about a standard or a law, but instead we rediscover what 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says. See, this is the standard. So it's like, hey, we want you to decide beforehand. We don't want it to be under guilt or compulsion. So if you're here and you're thinking, of course he's talking about money, he's a pastor. We don't talk about this. And I've neglected it to our, to our own folly. So here we are. Just an example of the difference between the babysitter of the law and the beauty of God. And here it is. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Like, don't, don't, uh, each one must give what's decided in his own heart, not reluctantly, or in compulsion in 2 Corinthians 9. Why? Back that up a chapter. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, though he was the king, though he was sitting at the throne of, 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 of God, he became a servant. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. He had everything. He laid it all down so that he could give you everything. And so everything you have is a gift. So he's not looking at you and going, hey, would you give me 10%? He's looking at you and going, I've given you it all. What will you do with it? How will you honor me? And so when we're thinking about giving, it's not under reluctance or guilt or compulsion, but it is instead, the law is, you give this amount, and so we do it. But now, all of a sudden, the law of love, the law that Jesus came to love us, isn't, you do this, and so therefore, he said it, and so I'm going to do it. It's, I've done this, now how will you live in response to that? Much deeper. Now, my relationship isn't to a law, it isn't to a scripture, it's to the Lord, it's to the living God who has given himself for me. See the difference? Babysitter is law. All of a sudden, this freedom that we have in Christ is go and rediscover how much God has done for you and live out of that. There's, there's much more to be captured when we're depending upon that kind of a relationship rather than, I don't know, what's the law say? Now it's, man, what does my Lord say? What is the Holy Spirit calling me to do? How can I do this in an honor to him? Of course, it's not just our finances, right? It's not just our finances. No, instead, it is a lot of things in the Christian life that we whittle down to a code of behavior instead of thinking, man, how has the Lord loved me? And therefore, how can I love others? Some code of behavior that we're trying to decipher. I remember um, we were reaching someone in our neighborhood in this last year or so, and they were just struggling, and one of the things that they expressed their struggle uh, with me was, I don't, look, I don't know all the rules, okay? I just know this. And immediately I just went, oh man, this is not about all the rules. This is about just the love of Jesus and how he's captured you and brought you in. This isn't about all the rules or all the laws. It's not a, it's not a much of a behavior. And so sometimes we treat like the Sunday gathering. And we go because, you know, God says to go to the Sunday gathering. And we go to neighborhood group because, you know, they said to go to neighborhood group. And we go to growth group. And you see all those hands that went up last week during our vision Sunday. So we go to growth group. And so we just go do all these things. And there's just no joy in it at all. It's just full of critique and cynicism and duty. Why? Because we're doing it under compulsion under guilt, under law, under shoulds and have tos, instead of, oh my gosh, like the Lord loves me so much. Look at what he's done for me. 
How do I live in response to that? Not just in, in giving of, of my treasure, but everything else that he's so gifted me with? How can I steward this and love him with everything that I, with my kids, with their heart, with, 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 my, with my home, with, my, with everything? And so all of a sudden, I'm now invited into this beautiful relationship where he's gonna guide me, comfort, and counsel me. I'm not, I'm pulling away from this, you do X, because I said it. You and I both know that parenting goes a little bit differently when we not just tell our kids to do something and then when they go, why? You go, because well, I said so. That, that has a short lifespan, right? But when we parent, because we're inviting them into the why, well, here, here's why. See, I'm telling you to clean your room because one day you're, you're gonna get married, right? And this isn't gonna be all about you, right? And you can't leave all those stinky clothes out all the time because they, they're not gonna like you, Moses. Right? And so on and on and on you go. Like, there's a why into that. It's not just because I said so. It's you got to start thinking about the bigger picture, how much more the picture with Jesus. So we mistakenly relate to God through a new law of shoulds and shouldn'ts over programs and activity. Even We even relate to the Bible. So it's not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's Father, Son, and Holy Bible. And we start to just really take out the personhood of Christ and the personhood of the Holy Spirit. Instead, God is calling us, reminding us, wooing us back into this relationship with a living God, and therefore we have to depend on him. Not on a written code, but on that which is written on our hearts. That God has so loved us, gave everything for us, how then will we live? So Paul is beckoning us into something greater than being really good law keepers, right? That's not what sets you apart. That's not what's going to get you through Thanksgiving. It's like, well, I kept the moral code or the Mosaic code, and I'm good to go. Your neighbors are not going to be excited about the God you serve if you're just really moral. You're just a really good person. They're going to be like, dude, that's exhausting. Will they be invited into a relationship? A relationship with God. And so Paul is beckoning us into something far greater than simply being good law keepers. Instead, my prayer for us, this is going to sound weird, but my prayer for us is that we would be known by our clothing. We'd be known by our clothing. Here's what I mean if you would read with me 25 through 27 of Galatians 3 again. So look, now that faith has come, that is all the things that, that relate to Jesus. That's his life, death, and resurrection. Now that faith has come, right, we are no longer under that babysitter, that harsh legal guardian that we don't want to speak of. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you've been baptized, if you've been publicly declared as immersed into his identity. That's the whole point of baptism, right? Is to publicly declare, I no longer live for myself. I'm now living for Jesus. He is my purpose and my identity. So much as you've done that, you've put on Christ. You've put on his clothes. His robes of righteousness are now yours. And that is a command for us. If you have a student in here that comes and is a part of, our, uh, of the Grove, they're in Student Sunday, they're learning about putting on Christ. Let me give you three talking points over lunch. Why is the clothing of Christ so important for us? Why does he reference it all throughout the New Testament, not as being good law keepers or good moral people, but instead being clothed and being represented as Jesus? Your clothes are the closest thing to your skin. 
right? There's an intimacy between your clothes and who you are. If you put on Christ the same way that you put on clothes, there's an intimacy there. There's a closeness between Jesus being with you. Okay, there's an intimacy that God has given you uh, with this new clothing of righteousness. Not only that, but it is the mark by which others will judge you. You guys have judged me today based on this beautiful pastel color in the fall. (laughs) You're thinking to yourself, that's completely out of place. That's more of an Easter thing, not a Thanksgiving thing. And you know what I think? I don't care. (laughs) This is a uh, wrinkle-free shirt, and that's why it's on today. (laughs) Judge me by my practicality. It's close to my skin. It, it's not wrinkled. You can judge me on that. Hey, it looks good. Not wrinkled. That feels like a win. Don't care if it's in season. Right? Other people judge you by the clothing that you have in Christ. Will you be known as a good moral law keeper? Or will you be known as one who's been forgiven, robed in righteousness? And then finally, going back all the way to Adam and Eve, what was it that happened whenever they fell, whenever they committed the original sin? They got naked. They were naked and they were unashamed and all of a sudden they knew they were naked. And isn't it that the clothing that God gives us in Christ to hide over our guilt and our nakedness and our shame? If you don't have nakedness or if you think you don't have guilt and you don't have shame, you're wearing clothes right now for a reason. Because that's what covers up our shame and our guilt. And if it's also not just social but also unbelievably holy between God If you are clothed in Christ, you are seen as righteous and forgiven in Christ as you put on his clothes. And being clothed in Christ is not just about showing others our identity. It is about reminding ourselves to whom we belong. So we're entering into an election cycle, if you don't know this. Back to the Fox News people. And wherever else you get your news. I don't know where you get your news. Uh, I, I have one station, basically. It's KHOU. Like, that's all I watch. And so I don't know what all the things are saying because we don't have cable. But culture's way to identify yourself has been riddled into a very biblical, uh, biblical uh, idea that you would clothe yourself in your gender. That you would clothe yourself in your sexuality. That you would clothe yourself in your socioeconomic status. That you would clothe yourself in your ethnicity and your color. That you would, isn't this what we've divided around over the last five, six, ten, 100, 200,000 million years? Isn't that what we've divided? Like, like you want to talk about the divisions in our, just in our country. Black Lives Matter. Some of y'all just perked up. It's divisive. Blue Lives Matter. Also divisive. All lives matter, equally divisive. And, and some of y'all right now, I'm like, oh, you went there. Yeah, man, the Bible's going there. Why do I say that? Let's read it. Verse 28. Look at, look at what he's saying. He's inviting us into a unity that isn't found on some socioeconomic status or a social justice or the next cause that's going to hit your Facebook feed that you're like, ooh, I really care about that now. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He is not saying your gender doesn't matter. He's not saying that your ethnicity doesn't matter. 
He's not saying that your socioeconomic status doesn't matter. What he's saying is all those things make up the story of God, which he's creating and writing in you, but it cannot be your core identity, not as an individual and not as a people. It can't be because you're a white church or a black church. It can't be because you're a Fox News church or a CNN church. It can't be because of any of those things, because you're a Republican or you're a Democrat or you're a Libertarian, or whatever else we're going to come up with next that we didn't like, so we're going to choose that. Whether it be gender or political preference or sexual preference or whatever it may be, that cannot be our core identity. Paul, Jesus himself, God himself has written these words down for us so that we may be united and therefore identified, clothed in Jesus himself and not in all this other ancillary nonsense. See, that's how we get divided, y'all, is by going, man, that thing right there, mm, that's the thing. No, instead, we must go back again and again to what Paul is saying. He's not saying that all these things don't matter. Instead, he's saying, if anything, if anything that you and I think is more at the center of who we are than Jesus, we are in danger. We're in danger of the anxiety that we'll never be black enough, we'll never be white enough, we'll never be gay enough, we'll never be straight enough, rich enough, poor enough, etc. These were never meant to be the thing that we are identified by, only Christ himself. And so you see this in our language that you self-identify as this gender. It's very, very intentional language that I think the world around us has no idea how important that really is. They're changing their identity about who they are based on what they do. And what God is inviting us to remember as Christians is that our identity is not found based on our sexual preference. Our identity is not found based on our ethnicity, Italian-American or whatever you're gonna be. Our identity is not found in, in, in the color of our collar, whether it be blue or white. Our identity is not found in the color of our skin. Our identity, it's gonna be found in anything, is in the red crimson blood of Jesus. And that's it. And then everything else comes out of that. So if you can be, let's just go there, right? Okay. We've already done this, so we're gonna go there. If you can be homosexual and be a Christian first, I beg of you to show me where that is in the scriptures. If you would be a Christian first, how is that going to spiral out into all of life? You remember the code? If you're going to give, how is that going to spiral out of who you are and then into everything else? If you're going to be a social justice warrior, good, do it. But do it because Christ is at the center of who we are. So I don't care much about what your preference is or what your gender is or what your nationality is. What I care, and I think what God is calling us to care about more than anything else, is that we are rooted and found and clothed in Christ. Will we be Christians first or will we be white first? Will we be African American first? See, how we order these things make all the difference in the world. It's not that these things aren't relevant to our lives or don't make up part of our identity. It's just what's at the core of who we are. Christ or culture? It can't be both. There's an A and there's B through Z. And so what God is calling us towards is to remember the A part of our identity is Christ and Christ alone. I went in places that I really wasn't planning on going. So I'll just say this. You got questions about what I said? Don't run out of here offended. That would be the opposite of what we want. Instead, I realize that we're in a difficult like, reality is that I have a microphone and you don't. 
And so anything you say, I basically can just shout over you like Ben Shapiro does. I know that I just offended another crowd. I mean, we're just going to go. We're just, we're just going down the line today, apparently. So I don't want that. Instead, I want a conversation. And so would you just, would you come? I'm much, I'm much nicer in person. Would you just come and like have a conversation with us? Um, just have a conversation with us and we can warmly and affectionately like have a, a, a dialogue uh, instead of just me saying what I think the Bible is saying to us. This is all relevant right here in Galatians, right? Whether it's circumcision or anything else, it's, it's, it's Jew or, or Greek or, or slave or free or male or female. And, and instead, it's Christ. So this is why it's the babysitter and the dragon slayer. Like, I don't know what your Thanksgiving's like, but ours is just a battle. And then we got to do it again in Christmas. And it's like, oh, everybody wants a piece of your, of your time and your kids. And like, we grew up, Melissa and I both grew up, we both have divorced families. So like, just double the drama. Uh, and, and so it, it just is what it is. And so it's just a constant, like, well, I want you this time. And I want you this time. And I want you this time. And if you were to come over here and do this, and, okay, well, we're just going to do this. And if you want to join in, you can come and join in. And that's basically been our posture. Like, we love everybody. We got, we got, we got to pare this thing down here, people. But I could get into all that. And as we work into that, like before Thanksgiving, this is the great dragon slayer is verse five, six, and seven. Why am I saying a dragon slayer? Because the enemy wants you to believe something different about yourself. The enemy wants you to identify yourself by sexual preference, by your ethnicity, by the color of your collar. He wants you to go, man, this is where life is found. I can just tell you that right now. Like, I am a person where I have been found in my past. I want to be found as being accepted by a boss. I want to be found by respected by other people. I want to be, I want to be a person that is known for his work ethic. And if other people don't see what I see in myself, I used to get cratered. And the dragon slayer was shown to me. Verse 5, 6, and 7, which say this. Christ was, has come, we're going to, by the way, just as an aside, like the fullness of time that the Advent season is going to be all about is, is Galatians 1 through 4, so we're not going to go through that today, so we're just going to go to 5, okay? That's why we're skipping ahead. Jesus came to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, y'all. You're not a slave to any of this stuff. You're not a slave to someone's approval. You're not a slave to what your family thinks of you. You're not a slave to what your performance review is. You're not a slave to your socioeconomic status or the clothing that you really have on or the car that you drive. You're not a slave. You're a son. This is why it's a dragon slayer. You're a son. Doesn't matter if they see all the things that you know that you've done throughout the year at your workplace. Doesn't matter if your employees or your fellow coworkers have demeaned you and undercut you so they can get credit for the work that you have. Doesn't matter. You are a son of God. Right? But a son, and if a son, then what? Then an heir. Co-heirs with Christ. Into the heavenly realms, Ephesians would say, Romans would say, Galatians would say. It's all throughout the New Testament. I can tell you that for me personally, there's two work environments that I remember being in where this was my stalwart. This was the place where I ran to when truly in time of trouble, when I knew that I was going to get uh, 
uh, maybe not recognized as I appreciate, as I expected. It was here that I found, man, it doesn't matter if anybody sees. My father has brought me into his family. This verse is, is indeed a dragon slayer because it, my family can push me out. They can be intimidated because now I'm a pastor and it doesn't matter because my table's with Christ. Your coworkers and employers can st- constantly posture against you and it doesn't matter. Your status is in Christ. Your social media feed can remind you again and again that your weekend was boring and theirs was awesome. It doesn't matter. God has seen you and all your flaws as a friend and said, but you're my friend. You're mine. And he calls us these sons. And with all of the desire to say sons and daughters, let me remind us for the women in here. Let me tell you how revolutionary this thought was in the first century. If you were a daughter of, uh, of somebody that died in the first century, you would have gotten nothing. Your inheritance would have been zero. Your father's inheritance would have gone to the firstborn son. Whether he was born after you, he's still the firstborn son, or before you as the firstborn son. All of, so like for me and my family, I have an older sister, all the inheritance of my dad would have gone to me. I like that life. Come on, baby. And you you know what God's doing? He's inviting the women into a culture of inclusion that once excluded them, and he's saying, all of you, male and female, and are treated like the firstborn son. No longer are we trying to get, get you into another family. Instead, we're bringing you into this family, and you now receive the full inheritance as a firstborn son. And so when you are brought in and he treats you like sons, it's not some patriarchal system. Instead, he's inviting you into the full inheritance of Jesus himself, the ultimate firstborn son. So women, rejoice. He sees you as sons, and that's not a weird statement anymore. Now, culturally, we'll say, and daughters, but now we know. He's bringing you into this understanding and this, this beautiful reality of this firstborn son, this beautiful inheritance. And what is that inheritance? Except for that the Spirit, God himself, is in us. And look at what he's doing. He's crying He's shouting. He's getting the attention of us, reminding us of who we are, and also crying out to our Father. And he's using this weird word that we don't use. Abba, Dad, Daddy, Papa. This very intimate word. Remember, not a babysitter where we have to call the babysitter and the babysitter calls the dad for us. No, no, now we have the Spirit inside of us and he's crying out in us going, Oh, dad, would you, would you hear? Would you hear the voice of your son or your daughter that you've adopted, you've brought into his family? We have friends that um, adopted not too long ago and they were adopting a special needs family or a special needs child. And if you've never done adoption, I've never done adoption, but what I hear is that you kind of s- select your child for this particular um, family. They were selecting like the kind of special need that they could handle. And they went through several of those profiles of the child that they were looking at. And they're like, in wisdom, they were like, I feel like that's probably, that special need is probably too much for our family. So before you judge them, they were adopting a special needs child. Just as a, by way of perspective. 
And so as they were flipping through these profiles, they were wisely going, I don't know if we can do that. Like, I just don't know. Our circumstances, the place that we live, it might be a little rough. I just don't know if we can do that. So wisely they pulled back and they maybe, you know, selected another child. And so they're looking at these profiles of these children of special needs and they selected one that was, they thought in God's providence they could handle. Like what a beautiful picture of God and how he looks at us. But it falls short, doesn't it? As he brings us into his family, he's not looking at our, at our profile and going, man, you got a lot of needs, I don't think I can handle you. Right? He's not looking at us and going, that's a special need I don't think I can deal with. Because God's love doesn't have limits, ours does, and it's wise to be able to be like, dude, I, got, I, I don't think I can go there. I don't think that I have the capacity for that. That might end up in some really bad places. But for this family, they chose one to bring into their family. It's forever a part of their family. They're not gonna get sick of it and be like, man, I, I, I knew it was gonna be rough. I didn't know it was gonna be that rough, and so I'm, re I'm returning it to the orphanage. That's not gonna happen. Neither is it going to happen for us with the God of the universe. He knows all your flaws before you know them. He knows all the special needs that you brought to the table and selected you anyway and brought you from an orphan to a son and a daughter of the king of the universe. So Christian, you're not just a Christian, some cultural subculture. You're his. You're his. You're his son. You're his daughter. Nothing can change that. Nothing can change that. How does that change how we're going to view crazy town? I can enter into all kinds of chaos now. I can enter into all kinds of rejection. I can enter all kinds of failure and take all kinds of risks because my father treats me like Jesus. To glory and honor be his name forever. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. A lot was said today. Some planned, mostly not. And uh, my prayer for us, Lord, is that uh, we wouldn't be a people that are anything else besides yours. How would it change how we view our week? If we entered into marriage and parenting and employment, if we first remembered, we're not doing this to please you, as if we aren't already, as if you aren't already pleased with us. We're doing this to honor you out of response for all that you've given to us already. You've brought us into your family. You're never gonna reject us. You're never gonna treat us by anything else besides your son or your daughter. But if those are here, if there are those that are here that do not believe in Jesus, Lord, would you remind them they're not sons and daughters. This isn't a universal reality. This is only for those that believe, follow, have repented, and believe in your son Jesus. And the good news that Jesus has come to die for us, to raise from the dead, to give us new life, give us a new spirit, breaking away the heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, multiplying blessing upon blessing on us through your son Jesus. So if we don't belong, if we don't follow, that's not ours. And so I pray, Lord, that you would 
Just kind of reveal to us where we are. Are we your son? Are we your daughter? Are we not? For those of us that are found at the table of your son Jesus, who are found as your sons and daughters, would you, would you help us be united around one cause, the cause of Christ, of forgiveness, of reconciliation? May our clothes be sparkling white. May we not worry about anything else besides that which you've given us, these robes of righteousness, of perfection, of good enough. Would you help us be united around that? Would you help our hearts be encouraged by that? And may we celebrate that through song and in a moment through sacrament. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.